Hello, everyone, and welcome to Heard on the Street, Street Fight's podcast where we uncover the stories behind the companies, and more importantly, the people that constitute this sector of media and advertising that we all call local. So where are they from? What makes them tick? What business and life lessons can we draw from that? So I'm Mike Boland, lead analyst at Street Fight, and our guest today is Matt Marr, who is founder of M7 Innovations, which is a consultancy that works with brands to incorporate innovative strategies and emerging tech into their marketing. So we talked to Matt from our studio in San Francisco about the trends he's tracking and best practices he's exercising. So here's our discussion with Matt. So Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Yeah, we'll have some fun with this, and we have a lot to talk about, um, including diving deeper into the, some of the things I just mentioned. But first, let's start with a quick intro for you and M7, for those unfamiliar. Yeah, so I'm Matt Mars, you said, founder of M7. And you know, at its core, Mike, M7 is we're technology, creative, innovation consultancy. And what we do is we help companies navigate emerging media platforms and new technology. So AR and VR, voice tech, Internet of Things, a few subsets of AI, Basically, any medium or consumer touchpoint in the physical or digital world, we help out with. Nice. Um, and those are obviously uh, hot topics today, and we're going to get into some examples and really go deep on what you're doing, what you're learning, and some of the um, kind of ROI points for the clients you work with. But before we do that, as we like to do on this show, we want to find out a little bit more about you, uh, kind of hit the rewind button. Um, so kind of what got you into all of this? Tell us a little bit about kind of your career path um, and then leading up to the founding of M7. Absolutely. I feel like everyone's like, oh, you're never going to believe the path that I took. It's so crazy. So hopefully I, <laughs> I don't under deliver on that. But yeah, so mine is a little bit out there. I, I graduated from college um, and actually I went to Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, the D1 campus. I played baseball and signed a professional contract to move out to Indiana to play professional baseball. Wow. And you got you to gotta know when to hold them and when to fold them. So I retired from baseball at the uh, ripe age of 22. Um, but I was always into technology and content. And actually first job was really uh, at a kind of fitness startup. And I, I started doing instructional baseball videos, no paid media against them, anything like that. Um, and they got some traction. So from one to two to 5,000 hits a day, you know, once I got up to about four five, six million, uh, that got the attention of Interpublic Group uh, initiative. So I actually hopped over there. They kind of said, listen, can you do some social media for us? Can you help out Hyundai Kia? Can you also create some content, kind of like a Swiss Army knife kind of role? Um, and then I had a, a great career over there, actually built a small production house when I was over there, started creating small social content in the Vine-like era, it's mm. in the Instagram era for you know Charles Schwab and Victoria's Secret and Miller Coors, um, and not just making the content, but trying to be innovative with it. How do you make a game on Vine, things like that? And I realized my calling was more in tech and innovation, um, being the nerd that I am. So I ended up going to Media Assembly, and I was head of innovation over there, and that was great because I sat horizontally across clients, and that was 20th Century Fox and Boehringer Ingelheim and Timberland, um, and just started to help them navigate the new media that was there. And it was about middle of 2019 when I've had, a, had enough conversations with C-level folks at these clients that I realized there's just way too much technology and platforms out there, and all these brands had to make bets. Do I go into AR? Do I go into VR? Should I go all in on voice? And I really thought there was a white space to play focusing on technology and solely innovation. So that's when I launched M7 um, in the middle of 2019. Um, and now I'm about almost a year into it, and it's great. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Some of my favorite people to work with or encounter kind of in the business world as an analyst on the sidelines and looking at different companies and always talking to them. It's a it's kind of a fortunate spot. You get to see a little bit of everything. But some of my favorite folks are ex-athletes, whether they be collegiate, professional. Uh, one example that comes to mind is a gentleman. I forget his name, but he was an ex-pitcher for the Giants, San Francisco Giants, who um, actually works for an AR company. Uh, it's, a, it's a real estate play to kind of visualize apartments uh, through AR interfaces. Um, so that leads into the next question, which is we often like to talk to guests about like their kind of, you know, mosaic of skills and their overall skill set. And that's kind of refined over their career through things that may be deliberate, maybe serendipitous. But, you know, how does that mix look for you? You just kind of characterized it well, but particularly like anything from your time as as a professional athlete, whether it be discipline, whether it be any other things that, that you think kind of feed into what you've done subsequently. Oh, that's a great question. So, yes, I mean, you nailed it. Right on the head. Discipline, first and foremost, um, especially when you're kind of taking the entrepreneurial life and running your own company, you definitely need that discipline. But I think also just the, the ability to work with a team, I think to learn that at an early age um, is huge because especially when you start to navigate new technologies and you kind of need to be a utility player, you just have to be a team player. You have to be able to do a lot of different things. So I think throughout my baseball career, it was, uh, you know, it was all about discipline, all about hard work, and I couldn't believe how much that actually just translated exactly into the business world hmm. and so many things I still um, call from and when I work with folks or hire anybody it's I, I do love that the athlete mindset you know it's like it's it's such a hard-working determined mindset that they generally are always great employees yeah that that's very interesting it's certainly logical uh, so let's transition now back to m7 um, and and it kind of, this kind of brings us up to the present. Tell us a little bit about the firm, you know, its kind of founding principles, its drivers, points of differentiation, any kind of like thesis or philosophies that you hold in terms of the, you know, the, the practice and, and how you work with clients, um, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So, I mean, I kind of founded it on like the single truth of the line I wrote down of like technology and emerging media platforms are developing faster than they ever had. So I really thought it's just, it's a three-tiered approach that we were always gonna take. You know, we're gonna distill down the tech, we're gonna discover the opportunities, and we're gonna actually execute the experiences. So that is the core foundation. If there's three things that M7 really does, it's one, thought leadership. So educating about these technologies. That can be through my weekly innovation brief video, this could be keynotes that I give, I can go teach C-suite or any entire brands about the technology. The next is idea generation. So when you start to understand the capabilities of the technology, it's then how does your brand play in this tech? What is the white space? How would you live there? So creating up and mocking up those ideas so they can taste, touch, and feel it makes it so much easier to actually imagine, okay, I can see my brand here and how it actually makes sense. Um, and the third piece is actually executing on the experience. So saying, okay, we you know the tech, we now see the ideas, how do we actually bring it to market? How do you make it an end-to-end -end solution? And that's where uh, I think M7 shines in a way in that, listen, I we're one firm, right? We can't be pure experts across those like seven technologies that I described. Our partnership network um, has some of what I would say are arguably the best in the world at their respective mediums. So the mm. Rain Agency, who is one of the best in the world when it comes to voice technology, 23 of the top Fortune 100 brands work with them. QReel for AR, Bluebyte for NFC, Snaproll for content. So I've just partnered with unbelievable subject matter experts, um, and they can help me with all three 
of those tiers of what M7 offers to a brand. So it ends up being an end-to-end -end solution. So nowhere throughout that process does a great idea fall through the cracks because it wasn't handed all the way to the end. Yeah, and you know the analogy that comes to mind, and let me know if this is fair or unfair, is you know I used to work a lot of construction. Um, you know, in, in kind of college and stuff like that, um, you know, contractors, right? They work with subcontractors. They are like the one point of entry to working with the homeowner who's ever building a house in, in a residential kind of context um, and just making sure their goals are met. But they work then with, you know, just a series of subcontractors that, that, that are kind of in their roster of trusted kind of subs, whether it be you know, plumbing, electric, stuff like that. And I guess that's really a, a way of leading into like, you know, it, it, what's the model that you're working with them? Is it is it like an agency model? Is it similar to that kind of contractor slash subcontractor analogy I just gave? Um, and how does all that kind of come together? Yeah, it's a great question. And I've, I've had that before where it's like, well, how many people work at M7? And I said, well, let's base it based on the client and the project for, um, and that's great, you mentioned construction. So I work with Suffolk Construction very closely, um, who are based in Boston and all across the US. Um, and there was this great project where we built this amazing augmented reality app, this experience for them. Um, and the team we put together to that, you know, we're working with essentially a team of almost 20 people. Then there's certain campaigns, say with Panera, where, you know, we might have two or three people on the team bringing it to life. Um, so it completely changes and based on what the client actually needs. And I mean, if you look at major holding companies too, you see that a lot where you know, they'll go into this massive global pitch uh, and then come out with a spun off agency that's just going to service P&G or just going to service Amazon. Sure. So it's the, same, it's the same concept of, I don't have FTEs or overhead or saying, okay, you're gonna have to put some fees in here to pay for this person. It's saying, what do you need as the client? What's going to benefit you the most? And we'll build the team around that. And I think one differentiating thing, um, which has actually garnered a lot of respect and actually gotten me a lot of clients is I also say no a lot. So. For example, with Panera, I've steered them away from virtual reality. There's no world in which VR and food make sense right now. Hmm. Um, and I say that to many clients, sure, yes, we'll take your money and make an unbelievable execution, but it's not right for your brand. So I don't want to do it and I don't want you to do it with anybody. So I think that's a big piece of it too, the honesty and transparency I have with all my clients to say not just what you should do, but what you should not do um, has worked out pretty well. Yeah, and that's a subtle signal at the onset of any relationship or throughout any relationship that you know, you're on their side if you are, you know, instilling that trust that you're saying things that even go against like maybe your your own short term interests. Like, for example, like having a larger project fee for doing X, Y and Z that may be wrong. Like, I think that that trust is really like you're playing the long game because you know that you're building a long term relationship with them. And, and they're, you know, again, a subtle signal like that's that probably instills a lot of trust when you're doing things like that and saying no, probably refreshing to them, too. And then I love the kind of dynamism of the, the fact that you have you know, the, the flexibility to scale up and down to variable levels of business or variable levels of kind of client scope, right? Um, so, yeah, so I think yeah. that's uh, on both those points, I think two things I would draw out as, uh, as some success factors. Um, now, cool, you, you mentioned AR a few times. I wanna, you know, definitely geek out about that. Uh, I have a lot of oh, interest yeah. in this topic and I've done a lot of research on this topic. Um, I actually run a, a publication called AR Insider where we kind of document all the innovation in the sector. So, so we're going to talk about that for a while. And um, especially, you mentioned Panera, the campaign you did for, for them. We wrote about that in Street Fight. Um, but before we do all that, we're going to pause for a commercial break. So when we come back, more with Matt. 
Hello everyone, this is Mike Bolin, lead analyst at Street Fight, and I'd like to talk to you today about Brandify, which is Street Fight's parent company. It's a local marketing company that provides a range of services for brands with brick and mortar store locations. So that's everything from retail stores to restaurants and moving companies and banks and healthcare providers and several other verticals. And Brandify manages the digital outposts where most consumers encounter these businesses today. So we're talking Google Maps and Facebook, Yelp, Apple Maps, and Bing. And the name of the game is really to create a compelling presence on these sites and apps and to engage with consumers more effectively using advanced reputation management tools. And this is all really compelled by the fact that 97% of consumers regularly search online for local businesses. So brands today can't afford to be missing from all those channels or lack multimedia content or contact information or visible responses to customer feedback. So Brandify synthesizes and optimizes all these channels through a local marketing platform. And it's all about standing out and winning the loyalty and lifetime value of tech-savvy consumers. So to learn more, visit Brandify.com. So we're back. My guest is Matt Marr. So Matt, before the break, we were talking about you, your kind of path to the present, um, and then also the inception of M7 Innovations and the high-level view of your kind of philosophies, how you work with clients uh, and the technologies you're working with. So now let's give that a little color, drill down one level, um, and talk about one of the campaigns um, that you recently ran. We wrote about this in Street Fight. Uh, it was also written about in AR Insider. Um, Panera, you worked with them. Um, you know, there are a few kind of product areas that are coalescing around AR and, and those could grow, but things that, you know, have, have a high degree of, of visual components. I think food is one of them. Fashion's another one. Cosmetics is a big one, but let's, we'll, we'll get to that stuff, but let's drill down on exactly what you guys did for Panera. Tell us about, you know, we'll start at the beginning. Tell us about some of the campaign goals from the client, from the brand, and how you worked with them to kind of bring this to fruition. And then we'll drill down on some of the, the takeaways, the results, and, and learnings. But first, at a high level, tell us, tell us a little about how it started. Yeah, so the, the thing I love about Panera and in, in talking about this AR campaign is uh, the one that you reported on, which was very successful and it was wonderful, that was actually the third AR campaign. And I, I yep. say that because that that's just shows Panera. Panera is investing in AR as a medium, not as the shiny object that so many other brands do, that they just think, okay, let me just put a face lens on Snap, or let me just try something really gimmicky. I don't care about ROI. I don't even care if this aligns to campaign objectives, but we need to get an AR. And it's a completely different ballgame with how Panera perceives it. Um, and that kind of shows the progression of how we got to this third one. You know, we did our, we did our first one at South by Southwest last year, and that was a Umix 2 campaign. And that was fun. That was like like dipping your toe in the water. And we did these cool menu mashup ideas of you know what happens when you mix mac and cheese and tomato soup. And it was all these fan-inspired ideas. And we showed what that mix-up looked like in AR with music in the background of like a, a DJ mix-up. So it was really fun. And we, we learned from that. That was both in-store and on Snap. Um, and the second campaign we did with Bleach Report, again, we're learning even more, actually taking 
the menu items and photogrammetry, the breakfast wrap and putting it in front of you to play with. Mm -hmm. And then it crescendoed with this third campaign where now we've kind of honed down on, okay, we want to actually show the food. We want people to crave it. Um, and then we put this one out on Facebook and Snap. And because we went through that progression, it's why we had this success because we, we had learnings and they really take this seriously as a medium. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you brought up the point about you can tell the brands that are serious about it versus those that are just trying to like check that box or just signal that they're being innovative and not really into it by you know the fact that it's not just a one-off thing. Um, and I think that the, the way I heard it put best, best recently is uh, Zabhar's uh, CEO, Casper uh, Tikier, um, said, look, if, if you do like the second and the third campaign – the, the the first one is the hardest, right? Because you learn you learn the most lessons, you kind of invest a lot. And then the second one, the third one, you can start to build on the momentum, one, but then also kind of some of those high front-end costs to get into this can then be kind of amortized over time. Uh, so it, it, the, the ROI as a brand doing it can actually improve over time as you learn how to run faster with the second or the third or the subsequent campaigns. Would, would you say that's fair? Oh, you, you couldn't be any more correct. I mean, I'll use, even use like an anecdotal one for the first campaign. So in four of Panera Cafes, we put these beautiful tabletops on, on a, a table right in like the middle of the restaurant that had all the snap codes so people could actually snap and actually do the entire experience there in addition to being digitally on snap. Um, and, you know, it's the known unknowns. People like loved the actual uh, seat and would actually just sit there. And we did like a case study, just kind of sat there to get a use case to see like how people were interacting. And people kept interacting, but they'd stay there for so long that we'd be like, hey, can they like get out of here so someone else can come in and do it? But it was one of those things where like, you know, should we put this on every table? We'll start small. But it's like little learnings like that to see, wow, people are like actually really engaging with this. Maybe it was a. Uh, we should have even put more in the in the first one. And that's the great thing about any new technology, specifically with AR. We're getting the feedback in real time to see how it works. Now, that was different. We're in person. But even digitally, we're looking at dwell time. We're seeing how long they're spending with the actual models. It's just it's a rich data set that just can really inform us moving forward. Yeah, and two things I want to draw out of that. One is the dwell time. We've been seeing across the board and analyzing lots of different AR campaigns that one of the benefits as a medium when done right is that it can really lead to those long session lengths which of course, you know, is, it, it, it's interesting, like we're now, like with any new medium, kind of applying the previous mediums, kind of KPIs and ways of thinking about it and metrics on this new thing. And over time, it'll obviously kind of gain its own metrics and native kind of measurements. Um, but just like we saw in the mm. smartphone era where things were just me measured in like desktop terms and it took a while and oh, we're still we're still kind of not, you know, get, getting out of that kind of habit creep with, with mobile. But with AR, it's going to take a while. But I, I mentioned that um, session lengths and, and dwell times, I think, are going to start to emerge as like one of the KPIs, one of the things we'll start to mm. be talking about as a standard unit of measurement, as opposed to things like, you know, a click through rate, right? Like a click through rate doesn't yeah. really capture it. Well, you make a great point, and, and this is actually a, a, a lot of the battle we face, especially when you deal with media agencies and creative agencies, it's hard to reframe your mind in this new medium. So what does anyone generally do? You benchmark it based off the past medium. So you look at viewability and you know a 0.01 click-through rate, right? You look at the video for possibly 1.2 seconds. I'm not even sure the exact rates now of what's acceptable, and then that's success, right? I'm like, my goodness, this person watched my video for two seconds. 
And now we're talking about a medium where they're spending on average seven to 10 seconds actually playing around with it, obviously 100% viewability. So you can't even really benchmark it based off the old medium because it's, it's A, going to blow that out of the water, and B, it's actually generating new types of statistics. So I think that's the hardest thing for the yeah. me media and marketing to get to realize that, we're, okay, we're dealing in a totally new medium and we might want to measure this differently. Yeah, and 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 in, like with credit to those folks that rely on those, you know, kind of previous mediums, that you're right. I mean, that's the benchmark they have, but also in a lot of cases, they're looking for budget, right? They're trying to prove it. Of course. And in order course. to do that internally, in order to be the, the internal champion to do that, you need to kind of present those numbers to wherever that budget is coming from. And there needs to be some sort of comparison. And the only comparison they have in that like tool belt are the previous metrics. You know, and you're so right. And that's where it's it's a fine line to walk because you don't want to do an A to A comparison to say, well, campaign A on Facebook got about 0.5 seconds, but campaign B got 7.8. What was the difference? So you're totally right. You need that to unlock spend. But slowly we're seeing the smart marketers kind of come out on the other side and say, okay, we will create new benchmarks. We will start to adapt what we know as this kind of shifts. But you're, you're spot on with saying we, we almost need that because that's the biggest piece you don't want this to be a bolted on innovation one time. And if it's measured wrong, they're never going to do AR again. So you kind of need that balance of both to justify yep. the spend. And overlaying all of this uh, overlay, you know, no pun intended, is is the fact that, you know, you have the great equalizer in terms of KPIs is, is probably, you know, revenue, any any discernible or, sure. or measurable revenue lift. Um, you know, because that obviously gets beyond some of the proxies for revenue, which are things like clicks and engagement. Um, and, and, and AR in some situations has that propensity to potentially do that, given that it's an experience that sometimes happens, you know, at the point of sale or near the point of sale. Like, for example, the Panera campaign, like the, the kind of in-store activations, I think gets you closer to being able to track some of the, you know, the things that people are really interested in, which is the revenue lift. Yeah, and I think that's a benefit. It's a great point, Mark. The benefit is that the leaders, and actually I'm, I'm going to fanboy because I'm a huge fan of AR Insider and the article you just did on Snap kind of leading the way in AR, which oh, yeah. they absolutely have. Um, I think the benefit we have is that these social networks and the tech giants are kind of leading the way when it comes to AR. So you know, these are walled gardens, and data is obviously very um, – specialized and we have to figure out ways to track, especially for an entire consumer journey. But we do get the benefit of working within Facebook's environment, Snap's environment, um, to actually get that intent attribution, which is important. And so by using AR on Facebook, on Instagram, on Snap, we still can get that picture, which helps justify the revenue that we're going to make from it and justify the next time we're going to do it. So that is a benefit mm -hmm. that it's these social networks that are powering augmented reality right now. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's also interesting. I want to go back to the, the actual in-store activations or the components of the campaign that involve things that are in the store. One of the opportunities we're seeing where they are is for companies or brands that have, you know, physical inventory, whether it be packaging, whether it be physical stores and kind of menus and things where you can kind of bring those existing things to life through kind of marker-based activations. And for those unfamiliar with that term, marker-based is essentially some sort of code. You probably everyone's probably familiar with things like QR codes that can then, you know, activate an AR experience. And in the AR world where I spend a lot of time, there was almost this kind of like shrugging off 
of marker-based AR because everyone is more excited about this world immersive AR where it's like, you know, the dream of holding your phone up and you're walking down the street and it just gives you a bunch of information of things around you. Few people know that's really hard to do in terms of integrating <laughs> all those data layers to kind of show the right thing on the right physical item. So until we get there, these marker-based activations, I feel like the pendulum is kind of swinging back in terms of the AR industry's appreciation for marker-based AR activations, not just because it's easier to do, but it's almost like a subtle reminder, right? Like the AR has not gained the consumer traction that a lot of people expected. So it's almost like a reminder that it's there, right? Like when you're in that store, when you're picking up that package, it's 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 a prompt that the AR experience is, is there to get you to act actually pull up your phone and go through the steps of, of activating the AR. Mm. So um, what, what are your thoughts on that in terms of what you've done with Panera in, the, in terms of the, the cost to action? Yeah, so I'm going to just quickly dig on that point because I think what you're saying is very smart and there's actually a, a long tail to it and that I'm totally with you that actually having something physical is actually not only really useful because technically it can anchor, the AR can anchor to the actual object to make mm -hmm. it almost seamless experience, but it also brings back that like collectors, uh, a collectible fee piece of things that if you start to create things where there's bespoke AR experiences on things that are physical, it brings more value to those physical things. So when we start to look at even with Panera, it's like the coffee cup and you start to look at all these things that people take with them, how can you create a brand experience on those items, I think that is an absolute future. And I'm completely with you that we're boomeranging back to saying there is value in physical objects. It's not just physical versus digital, but it's almost the marrying of the two and how can every physical thing have a digital counterpart to it that lives in the AR world. So I'm bullish with you um, on that point for sure. And your second piece that was about the call to actions that we had? Yes, calls, calls to actions. Yeah, so I mean, uh, if I focus in on the third campaign, um, you know, the great thing I said about these social networks is you can actually use the media placements, the paid media or paid social you'd buy to use AR. So it's not like a bespoke unit or something that different, right? So people are like, what am I looking at? You can use a standard Facebook ad unit, a standard swipe up snap ad unit. And we did that too. The difference is we were featuring the AR in that unit. So you're actually seeing someone manipulate and play with the wrap in that unit, which actually we noticed when people see that it's way more dynamic than your standard ad. They were clicking through to get to the experience. And then we actually saw great engagement once they were there. But even that subtle little movement of actually showing them the AR in the flat video unit entice them to actually get there. So I think what we tried to do is say, not, let's not just have like the beautiful flat graphic that says try out AR. Let's just show them what it actually looks like. And in a way you could feel like, well, maybe that's kind of lo-fi because it looks like a user video actually doing it. But that actually enticed, like that call to action actually enticed people more. So on the second campaign, it was with Bleacher Report, it was play with your food. So that was very in line with Bleacher and sports. Um, and it was saying like, you can actually play with this. In the third one, um, we're focusing on the breakfast wrap and coffee in this two-tiered lens where you're looking at your face first, it's dark, there's a trigger, you yawn, the sun comes out, the coffee pops up, it tells you to flip your camera around and you have this beautiful breakfast tray with the wrap of Panera coffee. It's kind of this two-tiered experience. Um, it was really interesting kind of taking both sides of the camera, um, but the same way in was just saying like, try this out. If you want to actually see what the food looks like in front of you, you can click here and enable the AR. Yeah. Now that that's interesting too. I mean, buried within your point is another great point, which is, 
the the actual activations and the clever kind of animations in your case like yawning and then you know the the animation activates i think we're going to see continue to see as we all step into this and learn it um, some of the creative ways that the actual integrations are going to happen using things like face tracking and stuff like that. But um, back to the the distribution uh, you mentioned, you know, on Facebook and Snapchat, that also brings to mind one of AR's advantages, which is we, we continually say that it can span the purchase funnel. It has that rare ability to be a high reach medium. Um, if you look at some of the reach that you can achieve on places like Facebook and Snapchat, whether it be in the news feed or kind of in the Snapchat lens tray. So you can achieve that reach, yet some of the activations themselves are very conducive to that lower funnel in the store or you know, with other examples such as makeup try-ons. It's literally kind of trying or visualizing these things which gets you closer to an actual conversion. So it kind of spans that funnel. No, it's a great point. And if I dive into it for a second, if and I'll just throw a couple stats out for that last campaign, right? So on Facebook, basically one of every four people who saw the AR ad went in store uh, to Panera after they saw it. And on Snap, it was basically 3%, 2.8. So 2.8% of anyone who actually experienced it then made a digital purchase on Panera's app to buy something right after it. And it really is split in two ways, meaning this, like how was that a success? And you could say, well, maybe the campaign was really good, the call to action was great, but there's actually two things happening. One, to your point, I think AR is very engaging, it gets people to click through, it gets people to actually play around with these models. But the second piece, which I wanna talk for a second, is what AR actually does to the brain. So what when I explain this second part, you know, the first part was fun. As you said, you, you yawn, right? The coffee comes up. But when you flip around, you're looking at their Mediterranean wrap. You're not looking at computer graphics. That was done by QReal. That was photogrammetry. That is hundreds of high-resolution photographs and actually reconstructing that dish. Yep. Uh, and, and QReal just did a study uh, with Oxford University, New South, New South Wales University, and we now have scientific data that proves that when a human sees a dish in 3D, in fo full photogrammetry, they're, it increases their craveability, it increases them wanting to actually consume that dish rather than just seeing a 2D image. So I think that stat alone is the second piece of why this was so successful. Because when we can actually see the dish, like I look at myself when I'm at a restaurant, I'm just looking at a menu with text, what will I do? I'll kind of look to my pocket, pull out Yelp, try to get a couple photos of the top images and say, oh my goodness, that burger looks ridiculous, I want that. And that's what AR can offer. So you're seeing that Mediterranean wrap exactly as it will look if you order it right now and eat it. So when I saw those numbers, one in four, and Facebook went into store, 3% of people actually buying, it didn't actually shock me because I know they saw the food and said, you know what? I want to eat that right now. Absolutely. Um, and that's that's really interesting. And also, you know, you mentioned photogrammetry and Q-Reel. I keep saying that one of the untapped opportunities that will really unlock this um, is the actual 3D asset creation um, and tools to do it easily and at scale. Um, if you're talking about Panera and they have a certain amount of menu items, there's a lot that goes into that. Now, if you can picture if you're Walmart and you just have tens of thousands of, of SKUs and all the color variations and all of the, all those kinds of things. So that, that actual kind of 3D asset creation, I think, is going to be a great kind of building blocks, you know, picks and shovels type of play that, that someone is going to be very successful with. Um, so we're actually going to pause there for another commercial break. When we come back, more from Matt. 
Hello everyone, this is Mike Bolin, lead analyst at Street Fight, and I'd like to talk to you today about Brandify, which is Street Fight's parent company. It's a local marketing company that provides a range of services for brands with brick and mortar store locations. So that's everything from retail stores to restaurants and moving companies and banks and healthcare providers and several other verticals. And Brandify manages the digital outposts where most consumers encounter these businesses today. So we're talking Google Maps and Facebook, Yelp, Apple Maps, and Bing. And the name of the game is really to create a compelling presence on these sites and apps and to engage with consumers more effectively using advanced reputation management tools. And this is all really compelled by the fact that 97% of consumers regularly search online for local businesses. So brands today can't afford to be missing from all those channels or lack multimedia content or contact information or visible responses to customer feedback. So Brandify synthesizes and optimizes all these channels through a local marketing platform. And it's all about standing out and winning the loyalty and lifetime value of tech-savvy consumers. So to learn more, visit Brandify.com. So we're back. My guest is Matt Marr. So Matt, uh, before the break, we were geeking out about lots of AR stuff, and particularly in the context of uh, the cool things that you did for Panera, uh, the campaign dynamics, their goals, the results. Um, so let's kind of uh, like take it from there and, and broaden it and, and kind of look forward. So for all the reasons you mentioned, like the the fact that food went in 3D. Um, can really boost that levels of consumer engagement. What other categories or verticals do you believe are also conducive to AR that you have worked with or are very excited to work with? I alluded to cosmetics earlier. That seems to be a, a popular category, style, any, anything that requires visualization of a product. What are some of the areas that you're excited to kind of uh, bring this to next? No, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, e-commerce is so ripe for disruption when it comes to augmented reality. So we're working with an eyewear company now, um, working on like try-on of what it's like to try on glasses. I think, just think fashion, right? So I think fashion's a huge one. Um, when you think of what it takes to actually try things on, I mean, retailers lose $550 billion a year just based on returning online orders. Yeah. Like imagine if you could actually see if something actually fit well and what the material looked like. And I think with this technology, especially with photogrammetry, we can start to try on watches and necklaces and earrings and even clothes. Um, and I think that, so fashion is just an absolute layup for this technology, but any e-commerce, and so then you're going into boots, you're going into, you know, sneakers, you know, it's so ripe for disruption in so many ways. And I think it's just the ability to imagine. I think that's what a lot of these brands have to realize is AR isn't just the shiny object. It actually can fundamentally change your business if you think about it the right way. Yeah, and I think the reducing returns will be potentially like a an impetus for adoption for a lot of folks. Uh, Macy's actually did this with furniture, right? And they reduced their return rate to less than 2%, where otherwise it was kind of averaging around 5%. So if you're talking about big, bulky furniture, which is hard to return and it's expensive for them, uh, another another product cat category there is probably flat screen TVs, making sure it fits on the wall before you order it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you're talking about lots of savings um, in dollars. So absolutely. Um, so, so kind of 
beyond verticals, vertical expansion or vertical areas of opportunity, let's also talk about like capabilities and technologies that you're excited about. We've been talking, this has been a very AR heavy conversation, but I also want to give a nod to several other kind of forms of emerging technology that that feed in, they, they might actually work in tandem with AR. But what are the other areas that you guys are working with um, and excited to kind of cultivate with your kind of um, client relationships? A great question. I think voice, let's, let's say voice. Voice is another just unbelievably immersive medium. The growth of voice technology and vocal assistance, but I won't go through all the stats, but we're at hundreds of millions of actual vocal assistants, Amazon Alexas and Google Assistants in our homes. You know, we're talking 30,000 third-party um, third products that have Google Assistant. Was it 20,000 with Amazon Alexa? So we, like voice is penetrating everywhere. And even in our current environment now, we're seeing uh, even more voice adoption. So I think voice is pretty amazing, especially when you think of the hands-free UI. I mean, hearables now, it's going to hit 93 billion by 2026. We have yep. AirPods, we have you know Alexa Buds. Um, so I think the hands-free UI of voice is, is, un is unbelievable. It'll get better with 5G. It'll be more of a human conversation, not saying we're going to be Joaquin, no Noah, um, Joaquin Phoenix in the movie Her. We're not there just yet. <laughs> But slow and steady, I think voice is very serious. So I work closely with the Amazon Alexa team and with the Rain Agency um, with certain clients on voice. So I'm just very bullish on what voice can actually do and just in terms of frictionless ordering, um, just a better, quicker UI. Um, I think the Internet of Things, cloud computing is huge for Suffolk construction. We're imagining what does the smart job site look like? Sure. You know, we start with the smart home, right? You start to expand out. 5G can give us smart cities. You know, we think what does the smart job site look like? Um, and then obviously all levels of artificial intelligence. That's such a balloon term, and I hate to say that. But we specifically focus on like intelligent agents, which is really another a tier of what voice is. So how can you have a chatbot or some type of intelligent agent that can help alleviate some of your actual community managers or customer service reps so they can focus on what they want to do and help out more and not be inundated with tasks of the same question they get hundreds of times. So building intelligent agents, things like that, basic machine learning algorithms that just help you predict more. So we kind of span the gamut of what we could possibly do. It really just depends on what that client needs or what they may not even know they need at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting, like connecting some of those dots or synthesizing that a few of the things you mentioned, like I love hearables, hearables and, and the concept of audio AR ties it back to the AR discussion where you know, everyone likes to think about AR as this graphical thing. Uh, but one, one thing that is actually available sooner is kind of textured, intelligent audio. Uh, and the first step to that is is conditioning the hardware use case, right? And everyone's running around with uh, AirPods in. That's there. The next step now is to have them activated. Like, I, I have my AirPods in all day, but they're, you know, they're really only in use like 2% of the time when I receive a phone call or something like that. But having a subtle kind of whisper in your ear that tells you intelligence about the world around you makes us all like, you know, secret service agents. Um, <laughs> and I think that that is the topic that's not talked about enough. And that goes back to your your discussion of like, you know, the, the hardware is getting there, the, the 93 million and, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and like the voice, of course, is the input for that. Um, and, and I think the voice technologies that are growing kind of like in parallel, like it, it's funny, it, I guess it's just a point on convergence of all the things you just mentioned all really feed into each other. Yeah. And you know what it is, honestly, and I, I talk voice because so many of my clients are, 
you know, ask me the question, when are we going to be able to advertise on Alexa? When are we going to be able to advertise on Google Assistant? You're talking one-to-one -one personalization at scale. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I say, and this is kind of my point, is right now we're still in the stage of automation, right? We ask Alexa or Siri to turn on the lights or turn on music. We want her to automate tasks to make our lives easier. We're not yet at intuition, but I do believe it will move from automation to intuition where she will know when to get us the Uber, the directions to go home because we're getting in our car and our workday is over. And in that intuition space is exactly when brands start to fit in and when choice starts to go away because I trust my assistant. I say I need a car. They'll know whether I want Uber or Lyft. I won't need to tell them that directly. So I think we're still in that automation phase with voice where we're gaining trust, we're learning. There's no way you can stick advertising in now. If I said, Alexa, you know, what movies are on tonight? And she said, do you need some Tide detergent? I wouldn't be mad at Tide for actually spending that money on the ad. I'd be mad at Alexa because right. she didn't know what I wanted. It's a very inherently fragile user experience. So we're in this really special time with voice. It's exploding, but we haven't shifted over to intuition yet. And I think when we do, the brand implications will be absolutely huge. Oh, absolutely. And I think that the, the, the kind of the land grab there in voice is, is, is going to accelerate it. I mean, you have deep pocketed giants, Amazon, Apple, Google, all really trying to develop and improve their uh, kind of underlying speech to text processing, which I, and, and that competition, I think, is going to get us there faster because as a byproduct, it's going to spin out better underlying technology for like, you know, all of the things we just mentioned. It's going to kind of work across the board. Yeah, and I'll just close with something Rain, I've been working with Rain on, and actually this is really their thought leadership, but they're starting to get into retailers now thinking about earbuds, thinking about digital wayfinding through voice. Oh. You know, where, where are the paper towels there in aisle seven? You know, you start to walk around and your earbud is actually guiding you. I mean, I, I think I read one of your articles about Bose AR. I mean, they were a little ahead of the game and it was a very uh, specific use case. So for the listeners who has, haven't seen it, Bose AR basically with Coachella partnered up and you wore these glasses that would play music through bone conduction. Yep. You never had to look at your phone. You'd say, okay, great. You know, um, this artist is playing over here and stings over there. I never have to look down. The bathroom's 50 feet over there. So audio AR is a whole nother world. And Rain's starting to play in that space where, again, which and this is my hope for humanity, too, we start to look up, right? We stop looking down at our phones and spending the three hours and 49 minutes the average American spends on a smartphone every day. And we look up and get this heads-up world where through audio or through glasses, whatever it is, we're able to actually experience the world through our eyes and not actually have to be looking at our, you know, little black mirrors. Yep, that's the dream. And the only industry that will suffer from that is probably chiropractic. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Um, so cool. Let's, let's wind down here. Uh, just kind of coming full circle. We talked a lot about you at the beginning. Um, what are some of your kind of personal goals uh, for the remainder of 2020? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, to be honest, Mike, it's, you know, you think of the agency model, you know, new business, you need to win, right? Or for, and for me, it's it's completely different. I mean, our goal is just to do the best possible work we can do for our clients and push both our clients and the limits of the technology as far as they can go. Um, and I think that's kind of how I want to continue to grow M7 is continue to do amazing work, not just for clients, but help to push these mediums and the industry forward when we think of advertising. Already kind of coming out of that third Panera campaign, we have some really amazing stats that came out of it. And we're trying to use those and package those up um, to start to say, these are the standards. You know, I think you were, you hit the nail on the head before when saying, you know, you do have to benchmark back because if you don't benchmark back, you're never going to know if it's successful. And I think what a part 
of M7 and what I want to become is to be able to not only do the work, but help create new benchmarks for new mediums, which therefore will be a groundswell to get even more brands on board with these new mediums and not be afraid to kind of dive in and see where they can play. So I think that's kind of the two-tiered goal. It's do great work for clients, just amazing, amazing work that kind of gives that wow and surprise and delight to any consumer that sees it. And the second piece is really to just push this industry forward and realize that voice, AR, a lot of these technologies we're talking about are not just technologies, they are immersive new mediums and they are the way of the future. Yeah, well, that's a great place to end it. Um, so that's all the time we have. I wanna thank you, Matt, for spending time with us. No, thank you so much, Mike. It was a great conversation. Yeah, this was fun for me too. Um, and thank you all for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes of Heard on the Street. You can find us on streetfightmag.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Also stay tuned for lots more writings and multimedia from Street Fight. This has been Heard on the Street. I'm Mike Bolin. Thanks for listening.